Probably pray for the teachers. You want to get out your sermon outline, says results of kingdom faith on it. Have that so that you can follow along. We are in the middle of Matthew chapter 15. A unique story, a hard story, one that we don't expect, certainly one that you wouldn't expect this time of year. It's the Christmas season, we want happy stories. And uh, this one's a little hard to understand sometimes. So let's turn to Matthew 15, starting at verse 21, and please 
Listen carefully as this is God's word. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Behold, the Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, as always, for giving us your word, making us your people. You've brought us again to this amazing gospel to learn about Jesus. We ask you this morning to give us the grace to understand some hard words here. It seems that Jesus is being mean. It sounds as though he's rude and arrogant, like us. He's not meeting our expectations, and it is hard to understand. So by your Spirit, open this gospel to us. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to understand Jesus. Help us to have the faith of the Canaanite woman. As is always, for this we need your grace. Help us learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let me turn this. There we go. Have you ever heard of the company Life is Good? This company makes uh, clothing and towels and bags and pet accessories and all sorts of stuff. And originally, all of it came with the tagline, Life is Good. Now you can find them and they've expanded. So you can get uh, t-shirts that say, Keep It Simple or spread good vibes, or maybe just a peace sign. My Life is Good t-shirt just has a baseball on it. The Life is Good company was started in 1985 uh, by two brothers, Bert and John Jacobs. When they were college students, they started by selling t-shirts door-to-door in uh, college dorms. And so from that humble uh, beginning, Life is Good has grown to be an $80 million company. They've started a charity music festival, and they've started an accredited public charity called Playmakers, which works to battle poverty, illness, and violence against children. Now, all that's great. And I'm glad that Jacob's brothers have been successful. And I'm glad they're trying to use their success to make a difference. I'm glad they care about and are trying to help children in need. But I'm left uh, with a pressing question. What do Bert and John Jacobs do when life is bad? Where do they turn? What do they trust in to heal the pain? What gives them hope? The reality that we all experience is that, though often very pleasant, Life 
also has a lot of very difficult moments. Moments that require more than a t-shirt with a positive message. So I can't help but wonder, uh, where did these guys turn when a loved one dies? What do they hope in when one of them gets cancer? Are they able to spread the message, spread good vibes, when they've been ripped off? How can they continue to say life is good when so often it seems to be going badly? And I'll probably never know how they would answer those questions. I'll probably never know where they turn when hard times come. I'll probably never meet them, talk to them, or get to know them. But these questions aren't just valid for guys who start t-shirt companies. They're valid for us too. We live in a fallen and broken world that doesn't often work the way we want it to. And we have an example of that in our passage. Uh, this morning, we have someone with a great need approach Jesus, someone who's facing a difficult time, someone who can't say life is good, and someone who needs more than a message of spread good vibes. So here in Matthew 15, this hurting woman comes to Jesus. But it seems that Jesus doesn't want to talk to her. He's trying to get away. However, like several times earlier in Matthew, we see that Jesus can't get away. That Jesus can't get away. Our text today opens with these words, verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are ancient cities on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in uh, what was then known as Phoenicia, the area that we know as Lebanon today. They're still there. They're still thriving cities. And several factors have caused Jesus to leave Israel on this rather lengthy walk of about 50 miles. One is this mounting pressure that he's getting from the religious leaders, especially after, at the beginning of Matthew 15, he sort of offended and embarrassed the heavyweights from Jerusalem. And Jesus wants to avoid a showdown with them before he's ready. He's willing to go to the cross at the time appointed by his father, but he's not going to let his enemies set the timetable. A second factor in leaving the region is the people are flocking to him for all the wrong reasons. They're right in recognizing that his miraculous power marks him as the Messiah, but they're wrong about what kind of Messiah uh, he's come to be. And after the feeding of the 5,000, we read in John 6, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountains by himself. Perhaps most relevant to this leaving is the fact that he and his disciples simply need a break. They need rest. That's why they had gone across the Sea of Galilee uh, some days before but the crowd spotted them, followed them on foot, ended up multiplying the loaves and the fishes uh, and the miraculous feeding of the multitudes. And then there was a storm that night during which Jesus walked on the Sea of Galilee and rescued the disciples. And immediately after reaching the shore near Capernaum, people brought all their sick to him and begged him just to let them touch the fringe of his garment. No rest yet. 
Then at the beginning of Matthew 15, the Pharisees showed up, and Jesus used that as a teachable moment to let the crowds and the disciples know that moral and spiritual defilement has nothing to do with hand-washing. It comes from the heart, as we learned last week. So finally, Jesus decides to take the disciples and actually leave the area. And he heads north out of Israel to this region of Tyre and Sidon. Mark, in the parallel account, tells us from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. Thought paparazzi were a modern phenomenon. Apparently not. Jesus can't find rest even in a foreign country. Now among those who have heard about Jesus' presence here in this region of Tyre and Sidon is a certain Canaanite woman. And that's where our text turns. Seeing this woman of persistent faith. Persistent faith starting at verse 22. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. Now, it's not unusual for Jesus to show contempt or even anger towards certain people. For example, the religious leaders who oppose him. He called them hypocrites. He called them blind guides and whitewashed tombs. But his anger towards them wasn't uh, as much because of their animosity towards him personally, as it was because they had hindered others from coming to him. The account before us this morning is probably unique in the harshness that Jesus seems to demonstrate towards one who's coming to him for help. His attitude is downright shocking at first, but once we understand it, once we look at it a little more carefully, come to realize that it's going to reveal Jesus' characteristics, his greatest characteristics, his mercy, his wisdom, his compassion, and love. Now, this woman's called the Canaanite by Matthew, apparently refers only to the culture in which she lives. Mark tells us she was actually a Greek woman who was born in Syrian Phoenicia. So the most likely facts is she's Greek by race, Phoenician by country, and Canaanite by culture. Sort of like a Jew coming to America and living in Atlanta. Multiple cultures all at one time. And when you have that, it's easy to feel that you don't fit in any of them. So she has all this sort of cultural baggage and all these differences, but she reveals that she does have some level of knowledge about who Jesus is. She comes to where Jesus is and she cries out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Now it's difficult to discern exactly what she understands of Jesus' person and his nature, but she recognizes he's no ordinary guy. 
Lord used of any man who commanded a great deal of respect. Son of David demonstrates she knows that he's a descendant of the great king, David. But more than that, those terms used together, O Lord, Son of David, is a recognized name for the coming Messiah. Though she probably didn't understand the full meaning of all that, the full meaning of his lordship, she does come with this sense of awe and wonder at his power and goodness. And the barrier here, though, it's great. She has a ton of cultural baggage. Greek women were socially savaged by their own pagan culture, which made her approach to Jesus even more remarkable. But she had a great need. Her daughter is afflicted by a demon. And if, if so, that's going to bring terrible um, havoc to this girl, to her body, physically. She would be progressively scarred, perhaps even maimed. Think how you would feel if this was your daughter. What would you do? This mother's desperate, and she's at the end of her proverbial rope. And she'd heard of Jesus, perhaps uh, just through the merchants in the area who had talked about these miracles that he had done. And so she now believes Jesus is her only hope that he could and would heal her daughter. She came in faith, and Jesus knew it. She asked for his mercy. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. People don't ask for mercy unless they've given up on everything else. They've lost hope. They can do nothing about their situation. This woman knows that Jesus is her only hope. And as Jesus draws her remarkable faith out, the first thing we see is her persistence. It's a persistent faith. Mark tells us uh, in Mark 7, in the parallel account, immediately a woman who's little daughter, so now we know the daughter is young, Little daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him, and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. That word begged means that she didn't beg just once, but she just kept on begging and begging and begging. She wouldn't be denied. She's not only persistent, but noisy. And Jesus' messianic title had come her way, so she keeps repeating, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. She probably didn't have a Jew's knowledge of Christ, but the term sounded good to her, and so she uses it over and over again. And knowing the heart of Jesus as we do, his response is amazing, because it is absolute indifferent silence. Verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. And we can rightly say that the opposite of love is not hatred, but indifference. Because indifference says, I don't care what happens to you. It doesn't matter what happens to you. You don't matter. It's irrelevant what happens to you. You're irrelevant. And that's what Jesus appears to be communicating to this woman. Can you imagine treating someone who's pleading and begging, falling at our feet with just cold, indifferent silence? Actually, I don't think Jesus was being indifferent. We've had similar cases already of when he was silent and people expected him to say something or do something. If you remember when he was on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the storm, at one point, he was asleep. 
And he lay silent and asleep in the ship. And at that point, he's more kind. His arm is more near to help, more certain than all the anxious cries of the doubting disciples. Jesus' silence is a silence of love. Because by it, he's going to elevate this woman's awareness of her own faith, and he's going to hold it up for the whole church for all time to be able to see it. Remarkably, this woman is not silenced by Jesus' silence, nor by the disciples' annoyance and their utter lack of compassion. Because they say, verse 23, send her away, for she is crying out after us. Peter probably scowled. Quick-tempered John got impatient. Andrew, Philip, and the rest thought her rude and presumptuous. It's total rejection. Jesus, get rid of her. But the woman thought about her daughter and remembered what she knew about the Lord, and she persisted. She even persists when Jesus himself seems to speak words of rejection. Verse 24, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, that's not her. She's not of the house of Israel. She's a Gentile, Syrophoenician, Canaanite woman. I mean, it's not like three strikes. It's like four or five strikes against her. And he sort of throws out this idea of Jewish exclusiveness. Doesn't stop her. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. She simply keeps crying for help. She wouldn't give up. Her faith is utterly persistent. What else could she do? Where else could she go? Her daughter is oppressed. Now the disciples apparently don't realize that Jesus does nothing unloving. And he does nothing without a divine purpose. He is testing the woman's faith. He's putting up barriers, not to drive her away, but to draw her close. I think he's also using the occasion Isn't there, a, there we go. Just remember to put it back or you'll have to memorize all the words for the last song. And I looked into the lamp, and now there's dots all over my paper. Anyways, some of you are flashing. You should stop. This woman is miserable. I'm a little miserable. <laughs> but we're told that she comes to Jesus... He has said this thing to her. She falls down at his feet. She's begging him. She doesn't stop begging him. And Jesus is trying to show the disciples the value of persistent faith. What does real faith look like as opposed to superficial faith? She won't go away. And I think part of it is because she's a mom. This is the love of a mother. And she's not going to quit. She's not going to stop. And Jesus is pushing this woman to reveal not just her persistent faith, incredibly persistent faith, but also this incredibly humble faith. This incredibly humble faith. Verse 26, listen to what Jesus says. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. 
And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. When you read that first part, verse 26, does that look a little harsh to you? Does it surprise you? Is it offensive? I think it is. I think there's a lot of ways you can come at this. But first, let me remind you, for him to say this probably didn't surprise her at all. And the reason it wouldn't have surprised her is that in this context, as a Gentile woman, she would have known that any Jewish holy man probably wouldn't even speak to her in public. She knew the Jewish religious leaders felt Gentiles were unclean. They were defiled. To speak to one in public, to touch one, to deal with one, well, she knows she's asking a lot. And when he says what he says, she wouldn't have been too surprised. But no matter how you slice it, Jesus calls this woman a dog. Now, when I was growing up, if you called a woman a dog, it meant she was ugly. That's not what it means here. Here it means you have no value. You are unworthy. That you are unclean. He essentially says, I can't take the bread I'm feeding to the children of Israel and throw it to Gentile dogs. She says, I need something from you. He answers, I'm not going to give it to dogs. He's calling her a dog. Now, if you're offended, it may be because we're not reading the whole chapter. Because if you read the whole chapter, you should just be puzzled. If you read the whole chapter, you realize that all of Matthew 15, Jesus is saying Gentiles are not defiled just by being Gentiles. It's not what's on the outside. It's not the flesh. It's not the pedigree. It's the heart that makes you clean and unclean. He's demonstrating what he has just taught. So what he's saying shouldn't be offensive, but it should be puzzling because it does sound like he's contradicting uh, most of what he said already. He's alluding to the fact that dogs are unclean. As far as the Jews are concerned, a dog is an unclean animal, but quite frankly, I mean, I have dog, uh, and I've had dogs for years. Dogs are unclean to anybody with common sense. I love my dog. She can be disgusting. You don't bring your dog and put it up on the table with the children. You're having a meal, dog jumps up on the table. What do you say? Oh, sit here. No, you say, get down. The dog's not allowed to be on the table. The dog's not allowed to be at the table with the children. The dog is only allowed under the table. He tells this woman, you're a dog. How does she respond? This is what's so fascinating. First of all, I think she picks up on the illusion that he's given her this mental image. In the ancient world, the family would come to eat. The father would be at the head of the table. And the children would come around and they would be given food from the father's table. And if there were dogs around... Uh, the dogs might, as she said, get the crumbs, eat the scraps from the table. So she says, wait a minute. 
The dogs get the Father's bread too. Sure, we get it later. Sure, we get less. But we do get leftovers. Yes, Lord, you're right. But there's enough bread for us dogs as well. What in the world's going on? Here's what's going on. She is giving you and me a model. This woman is a model. She's not unique. In fact, what she shows us is something about the nature of saving faith, the nature of faith that connects you with God, the nature of faith that brings the power of God into your life. And she shows us this because she says uh, two things here. First of all, she says, basically, yes, I am unfit for the Father's table. She doesn't get all upset. She doesn't jump up and down. She doesn't run around. She doesn't say, how dare you talk to me like that? In fact, because of her response, almost for sure she recognizes this is not a racist statement that Jesus is making. It's a theological statement. He's not saying you're unclean because you're a Gentile, which is what the Pharisees would say. He's saying you're unclean because you're human. And humans are sinners. You're unfit for the Father's table because you're a sinful person. And she gets it. She understands that. She recognizes he's not making a racist statement, but a theological statement. So what does she say? She says, yes, Lord, of course, I don't deserve to be at the table. Of course, I'm unfit for the mercy of God. Of course, I'm unfit for the blessings of God. That's the first thing that she does right. But then there's the second thing. She doesn't hang her head. She doesn't walk away. She says, yes, I'm exactly what you say I am, an unworthy sinner, no bread for me. But she turns around and she says, but I know there's enough mercy on that table for me. Of course, I'm not fit to sit at the table. I'm not even asking for that to sit at the table. But there's enough mercy for me. I know you have a big heart. I want that. And when you see those two things together, you get real Christianity. Let me show you what I mean. First of all, she's a model because she says, yes, Lord. Okay, I'm not fit to be there. I'm not fit to sit at the table. That's a model for us. Jesus says you're not fit to be at the table. All of you who are members have said that. You have. The first membership question is, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope? Save in his sovereign mercy? That's a good question. And that's what we're getting here. We don't deserve it. It's not until she says, I'm a dog under the table, that she's actually fit to be a child at the table. It's not till she admits that she's a dog under the table that she's admitted as a child to the table because that's what he does. This is the gospel. You say, I see. Jesus says, you're blind. You say, I'm blind, Lord. And he says, now you see. You say, I'm all right. I got it together. I'm good. Jesus says, you're condemned. You say, Lord, I'm condemned. He says, that's all right. I took your condemnation for you. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who know the Lord. 
as follows. We see these principles throughout Jesus' teaching. Matthew 23, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Matthew 10, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the gospel. She comes in and says, yes, Lord. She is a model for us. But the other thing she says, and this is, this is great, says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs get the scraps. And what she's thinking, I, I think this is very important uh, for us to realize. A lot of people can say, I see. Being a Christian just means you've got to hate yourself. You've got to look down. I'm a sinner. I'm terrible. Hit me again. I'm not worthy. And if she walks away, if she screams because she won't see the magnitude of her sin, she has failed to understand Jesus as Savior. But if she walks away because she also can't see the magnitude of his grace, she fails again. In other words, it takes pride to say, what do you mean I'm a dog? But it also takes pride to say, there's not enough mercy for me. My sins are too big. And there may be people in this room this morning who feel very bad about themselves, filled with self-loathing, a sense of inferiority. You think you're being spiritual. Let me tell you, repentance is not just based on humility. That's part of it. But it's also based on the confident joy and the greatness of the love of Jesus. This woman didn't just say, I'm a sinner. She said, your mercy is deeper than my guilt wider than my wandering, stronger than my weakness, greater than all of my sin. If you're a member of this church, you've said that. That's basically the second membership question. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners, and do you receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. The first question is, I'm a sinner. The second question is, I can't save myself. Only Jesus can save me. You've got to understand what's going on here. This is astounding. This is an amazing passage. You've got to put these things together, these two questions. And we see that many times uh, in the scriptures. Isaiah 6, Isaiah has a vision of the Lord. He says, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And that's when the angel flies to him like lightning with healing from God's altar. When the prodigal son in Luke 15, uh, he's run away from his father, he's in a far country, he's squandering everything, he winds up eating pig slop, and he comes to his senses. In my father's house, there is bread to spare. And on the way back, because he's willing to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in thy sight I am not worthy to sit at your table. The father runs to him and embraces him and kisses him. That's real repentance. Repentance characterized by both deep humility, I am a sinner, but joyful confidence in the mercy of God on whom I receive and rest alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. That's what releases the love and power of God into your life. Nothing else does. And for this answer, Jesus says, go home. 
your daughter is well. The scripture records this delighted exclamation from Jesus' lips. He says, oh woman, great is your faith. I think it's interesting. Jesus only says that twice. Great is your faith. Both Gentiles, Roman centurion, this Canaanite woman. I think it's an incredible compliment from the Savior. It warrants our closest attention. There are thousands of people who appear in the scriptures, both named and unnamed, and only a few are commended for faith. Here we find the faith of a woman whose name is unknown. In our passage, Jesus holds her faith up, first to the light of his strange silence, then to that apparent uh, rebuke, but now the church through all the ages can see just how beautiful her faith really is. It's a story of faith that delights Jesus. And it can be great help for any person who hasn't yet come to faith in Christ. You can say, I'm a sinner. You can say, I'm a dog who belongs under the table. But then you can say, there's bread to spare on that table. And I'm going to trust Jesus to bring that mercy and that grace to my life. Perhaps uh, you're someone who's known Jesus a long time. I think this can be a great help as well to the believer who's struggling with faith. Perhaps you're in those hard times and your life is good t-shirt isn't cutting it right now. And this beautiful encounter is a faith-building encounter. If it's viewed from beginning to end in the context of Matthew 15, it's evident it's divinely arranged. Jesus has just come off this huge clash with the religious establishment over the concept of ritual defilement, arguing that the externals don't defile a person. What's on the inside makes a person unclean. And once the encounter is over, he withdrew to get some rest, but he purposely goes to Gentile territory, considered ritually unclean, and he meets this unclean woman, and her faith is dramatically contrasted with the hardened hearts of the Pharisees. And I think her faith is a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's going to be proclaimed with authority throughout the Gentile world. There's a popular movie in my house, a favorite of the women in my house. It's called Sabrina, the remake with Harrison Ford and Julia Ormond. Sabrina's about a servant girl, the chauffeur's daughter, who essentially has a love affair with this rich tycoon played by Harrison Ford. And at the very end of the movie, everything seems to be falling apart and Sabrina runs away to Paris. And Harrison Ford, the rich man, who's being driven around by her father, asks her father, where is she? What's the father say? He looks at her. He realizes which one is the wise one at this point. And he says, you don't deserve her. He says, I know, but I need her. And there's this brief staring match. And then the father just gives her the address in Paris where she is. Because he's rich, he can fly faster. He gets to Paris ahead of her. 
He's got a private jet. She's delayed by the weather. And he gets there and he's waiting for her and she arrives. She's stunned to find him already there. And she just looks at him and she's not understanding. And he whispers to her, Save me, Sabrina Fair. You're the only one who can. And what if Harrison Ford tells that father, where is she? The father says, you don't deserve her. And he says, what do you mean, I don't deserve her? She's a servant girl. I'm the rich master of the universe. She's lucky to have me. What would the father have done then? You know what he would have done then. He would have done what you would have done or what I would have done, and he wouldn't have told her, uh, told him where she was. Common sense says that if Harrison Ford thinks he deserves her, he doesn't. But if he realizes he doesn't deserve her, he does. And until he gets to that point where he realizes he doesn't deserve her, their marriage will never work. You can tell that from the whole movie. The only way for him to be fit for Sabrina is to admit that he's not fit for Sabrina. If he thinks he's fit, he's not. If he thinks he's not, he is. And right now, for some of you, do you know what the Lord is doing to you? He's doing the same thing to you, not with words, but with events. He's showing you that you don't belong at the table. He's showing you the hidden dirt in your heart. He's humbling you. He's bringing you down. He's letting events reveal your weakness. He's letting events reveal your selfishness. He's letting you see you don't deserve to be at the table. And what are you doing about it? How are you reacting to that? Are you running around complaining, I deserve better than this. I'm better than most people. If you say, I deserve a place at the table, you will never get one. It's the same spiritually. Until Harrison Ford realizes he doesn't deserve her, he's not fit for her. It would be bad if they got married. Until you say, yes, Lord, I am under the table. You're not fit to sit at the table. But when you finally say, Lord, here I am. I'm under the table. Then he invites you to come sit at his table. What's Matthew saying? He's saying, this is the king. This is the king who's come. He's come lowly and meek and sighing. He goes up into the land of the Gentiles. He goes up and deals with these Gentile people, these unclean people. He even calls them dogs to show that anybody can sit at the table. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you've lived the last 10 years at the gates of hell. And some of you can say, oh yeah, I was there. It doesn't matter how messed up you are. It doesn't matter how broken you are. It doesn't matter. You need to tell Jesus, save me. You're the only one who can. There's a really great old sermon by an old Scottish preacher named Octavius Winslow. He has a whole sermon on the verse where it says that Jesus sighed. It's called the sigh of Christ. Do you realize how often he sighs? And it's usually when he heals people, when he does something for someone else, when he does a miracle or turns water into wine. You can sort of hear him sigh when he heals this woman's daughter. 
Because whenever he helps someone else, he sighs not just for them and not just for us, but for himself. Because he knows what it's going to take in order to really heal us. Don't you see, for the dog, you and me, to become a child who sits at the table, the son who's sitting at the table has to become a dog. For us to sit at the table, he has to be thrown under the table. For the woman to come and drink the wine of joy at the table of the Father, Jesus is going to have to be cast out, thrown to the ground, beaten and kicked like a dog. For the dog to become a child, the child of God has to become a dog. And he sighs. He'll never make you go through that because he has already gone through that for you. Thomas Cranmer wrote one of the great prayers in the English language. It was the prayer of approach to the Lord's Supper in the very first book of common prayer. Got to thank the Anglicans. Everybody and the brother rips off the Anglicans, including us. But millions of people have prayed this prayer, and it's based on this story. It goes like this. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We be not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have Mercy. And every time anyone has ever prayed that prayer, Thomas Cranmer has been inviting people to step into this woman's shoes because she got the gospel. She got it, and she went home, and her daughter was well. How are you? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. There. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. Thank you that in this passage we see your son and open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Open our eyes that we might see what you had to do in order to make us sons and daughters who can sit at your table. Change us with the knowledge of what you did so that we can approach you with holy boldness, with persistent faith, with humble faith, knowing that we deserve nothing of your grace and mercy, and yet you love to lavish us with hope and loving kindness. Help us to know and to speak and to live the gospel. And Lord, if there's anyone among us this day who comes here not trusting in Christ, we would ask by your Spirit, you would draw that person to yourself. Use this story of this woman of faith to change their life, to change their heart. You need to do this by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that they may be embraced by you. Help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.
Receive the Lord's blessing. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God bless you. We'll see you next week.